I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another edition of the Yoke with Doke. Tom Doke is uh, back today, so it's uh, it's great to talk with Tom again. I think we both have had very busy travel schedules this summer, which has limited our ability to get on uh, on Zoom and and talk or be in person uh, together to record some some podcasts. But thankfully. Uh, travel slowing down for both of us uh we got some episodes here and i i think we'll get some more uh around the holidays uh and and there's a lot to talk about tons of stuff going on with golf design and uh it was exciting to catch up with tom about some of his current projects that he's been working on as well as some projects that are are coming up and then we did another part on uh, a lot of listener Q&A, a lot of ranging topics, uh, lots of interesting conversation about golf design. So a quick reminder, we are barreling down on the holiday season. We have uh, the Fried Egg Pro Shop stocked up, ready to go. We have uh, a ton of print photography in there that you don't really have to worry about with, with running out. But, you know, other items we have, you know, I think we've got pretty much all of our our holiday stuff up now if you really love something and and want a specific piece just to avoid not having it run out we obviously have limited quantities we can't you know stock crazy amounts uh we're still a small shop uh but if you want something uh you should go get it now um before it potentially could be sold out quickly. So that's proshop.thefriedag.com. Uh we will have a big sale this uh this coming Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever it is now. I feel like people are doing entire month sales. It's it's kind of crazy. So uh Meg and Will uh from our team have worked really hard to get a, a large variety in there um and uh some fun new items. So Check it out, uh, proshop.thefriedag.com. And now here is Tom Doe. Tom, welcome back. It's it's been a little while. What's uh you've been you've been all over the place, huh? I've traveled a lot this fall. Yeah, really the last year, you know, it was about September, October last year that we that I started committing to new projects and I didn't, you know. I didn't anticipate that there was going to be a boom like there has been or that some or that so much of it would would involve me in any way <laughs> that they call you know I'm I'm starting to get calls about the kind of projects that I didn't used to. And that's partly that there's you know there's a big void now in the business that you know Pete Dye and Jack Nicholas and Tom Fazio aren't really designing golf courses anymore. And so so all of the all of the kinds of projects that used to go to them, they're trying to figure out who to go to. And, and, you know, I'm one of the people that's getting calls about, you know, bigger projects, more corporate projects, just, you know, in addition to my little niche that I've always had. Um, And so I've wound up, you know, since, 
since a year ago, I signed up seven or eight new jobs, which I, you know, I've never, I've never been that busy before. And, and, you know, at the time, you know, once it started looking like, okay, there's a boom, you know, I thought, you know, people were also talking about, oh, there's a recession coming. So I'm like, well, you know, probably not all of these are going to happen or at least not happen as fast as they say. Um, but in fact, most of these clients, they have the money in the bank. They're not borrowing it from a bank. So it's not like 2008. These projects aren't just going to all go away now. You know, maybe some of them got a little more complicated with permits. Uh, so they're taking a year long, you know, like the first two I signed up, I thought we would be starting them right now. And they're still knee deep in the permit battle. And it'll be six months or a year before they can get going. So, so then when somebody else called, I said, well, you know, I can't do it next, next winter. That's, I have all these things pushed back into next winter. If you could actually do it this winter, we could do it. So I've got a couple of things like that, 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 you know, we kind of rushed through the permits so we can get started on them. Um, and so, you know, I'm juggling a lot of balls right now, doing, drawing plans for like four or five different places at the same time. <laughs> you know, the, the routings are all done. They have been for a while, but you know, the, all the documents that they need for the pl planning permission is what's eating me up right now. As you said, you're busier than ever. What what do you think your like capacity is on on a on a like what's the ideal capacity and what's what's the maximum amount of work that you could do at once? Well, you know, back in the day, we never had more than three new projects going at the same time. That was sort of my comfort level based on the staff that, you know, I have three main associates. It's like they could each be running one. It's better if they're not all at running exactly the same time so that, you know, one of the, you know, Eric can get away and come when I'm on Brian's project to help out a little bit and then they'll do the same for each other. Um, you know, now it sounds like I'm going to have five golf courses in some stage of construction in May. And of course I have, you know, Angela Moser and Clyde Johnson and Blake Conant, who have worked with us for years, you know, they're definitely to the point in their careers where they can run a job and they've been they've been excited to have that chance. And one of the reasons I've co committed to more things is because it's like, yeah, it is their turn to run a job. But, you know, I'm going to be pulled more ways than I've ever been pulled before. And that's going to be tricky. And then, you know. You know, one of the reasons these last few courses have turned out so good is because one of those people were, you know, they were number two, you know, like in New Zealand last winter, Brian Slonick was running a job, but he had Clyde and Angela there the pretty much the whole time shaping with him. Um, now they're all going to be on their own things and can't rely on each other so much. So in Wisconsin, the last two years, we've been like bringing some new interns through and seeing if we can train a couple of them up to be a real help shaping for the next year or two, because we're going to need the help. With having, you know, three very talented people um, like Clyde, Angela, and uh, Brian on a project, 
Is is there actually also, you know, advantage to only having one that's doing primarily all the shaping? Because as opposed to three being spread out, if one per say one person shapes all all eighteen greens, could it actually be a benefit to having a rhythm? I you know, obviously I think it could you you could make cases either way, but there might be an advantage also to having one person and having a cognitive like a very singular focus you know focus on every single green sure uh we'll find out you yeah. know our our answer to that up to now has always been no we'd rather have some outside input and you know whoever's running the job it's their call at, you know it's their call and my call at the end of the day how much of that input from the others to take in but you know having three or four pairs of seasoned eyes on every feature is a great thing. And, you know, it's going to be hard to give that up where we have to give it up. Um, you know, maybe we're not giving it up totally. It's like, you know, it's, it's not like there aren't other talented people around and good superintendents involved and all the rest. It's just, you know, we don't, we don't have all the same people that we've been relying on for the feedback. Let's talk about one of the uh, new projects. It's, it's one that we've talked about uh, probably almost more than any other project of yours uh, on, on this podcast. It, it's your first project and it's coming back high point. Um, so I think, you know, this has been reported in the, I think the Traverse City newspaper was the first one to report it. You've been on Golf Channel talking about it. High point in Traverse City is uh, is making a comeback. Like something in my head, you know, all the years that we've done this podcast was always like, I, I just don't know why Tom just doesn't buy it and, and, and rebuild it because it seems like he wishes it was back. So yep. uh, I, Rod Trump, who who I have gotten to know over the years, uh, is uh, is behind it. Tell us about that process of, of getting this in and when you actually truly believed that it was coming back. Um. Well, Rod Trump, who's president of Pine Tree Golf Club right now and no relation to our ex-president, called me about a year ago right now to ask me if I was interested in reviving High Point, just completely out of the blue. (laughs) And, you know, we've talked about it a lot. You and I have talked about it a lot over the years. You're not the only one I've talked to about it. So it it was a shock to have somebody call and be discussing it seriously. He'd been trying to buy the Kingsley Club when it was up for sale. He didn't realize that he was bidding against four or five other groups, Um, you know, and he thought he was going to get that job. He thought he was going to get that course and then it sold to somebody else. And he was like, God, I really love Traverse City. And I thought I thought it was going to happen for me there. And a couple of the local people that he knows pretty well, including Adam Schreiber, who was golf pro at High Point at one point, said, you know, if you want to do a golf course in Traverse City, you should talk to Tom about High Point. You know, everybody here knows he'd love to redo that if he could. So that's what prompted the call from Rod. And I was like, yeah, I mean, if that land is for sale and it sounds like the hops farm isn't really, you know, making tons of money and they're not going to expand it, they might be interested in selling some of their ground and having a crack at it. So let's try to put this together. And, you know... I mean, I've believed it's a serious thing now for almost a year, but I've been trying not to get my hopes up because I know the, you know, the development process is complicated 
And it's going to cost a lot more than $1.3 million to build a golf course there again, even though there was half of one still laying there. Um, it's a little different project than the first time. You know, when I, when I did High Point the first time, the Hayden's owned 320 acres. And everybody used to comment on how different the two nines were. One nine was in like old orchard ground that mostly just kind of tilted to the north toward the road where you came in. And then the other nine was back in woodsier stuff with more dramatic elevation changes to it. And the hops farm covers most of the front nine and a little bit of the old 16th and 17th holes where they came out of the trees. And for the hops farm to sell us the ground that they weren't using for the farm, that's one thing. They're not really using it. So the land caught, you know, the land costs, whatever the land value is up here now. Um, but to, to actually restore the front nine would have cost a lot more because you'd be paying not only for the land, but for the crop that they have on it. They tore up that part of the golf course and kind of leveled everything out more in order to put up all the poles and have the hops farm. So, you know, it would have it would have been hard to reproduce all the greens complex that we built the first time. Even some of the topography has gone away. I've never really walked through there to see if I can even recognize exactly what it was like anymore. Um, and we do have, interestingly enough, we do have the LIDAR stuff on that. They shot it. The oldest LIDAR stuff they shot in Traverse City was just before they tore up High Point. Wow. So Brian Zager assures me that if someday the POTS farm goes away and we want to rebuild the front nine, we can. <laughs> but right now, that doesn't make any sense for Rod. He was just going to have to pay more for that land to do it. And the wild card that he didn't really know about, but I did, was that right when we were building High Point, the Haydens bought another 160 acres to the east of the golf course. And they, you know, in like 1988, they asked me to, what if we did a third nine? That's what would, before the golf, before the first 18 holes even opened. And I did a layout for that and they never pursued it at all. But I knew that between that land and the back nine, that there was, you know, there was the potential for an 18 hole golf course that didn't get into the hops farm. And that would be a doable land deal. And lo and behold, that's what we're going to build. So it's a new version of High Point, and only like six or seven of the old holes will will still be in the golf course. But they're that that old stretch at the start of the back nine that's in my book is a sample of how to route golf courses. It was my favorite stretch of the golf course. It was everybody's favorite stretch of the golf course. You know, yes, there was there were some holes in the front nine that were really cool too, but you know, it's like we've got to crack at building a new golf course with some dramatic new land and kind of the best at the old hype, which I think is going to be a really fun thing to do. I, sh I probably should have prepared here, but is, th is that video, there's that great old video of you putting balls on a green. Is that one of the holes that will be back? Yeah, that was the 13th. Green. I thought that was. Yes, that is. That's definitely one of the holes that we're saving. I wouldn't go so far as to say I wouldn't have done the project <laughs> if that hole wasn't part of it, but <laughs> That was always a favorite. That thing is, it's just a wild green. And, you know, Ron Witten from Golf Digest, dude, you know, he came, I'd met Ron before when I worked for the Dyes, but he came up to visit like when we were in the middle of construction at High Point in 1987. And he said to me like several years after that, it's like, yeah, as soon as I saw the 13th green, I was like, 
wow, he's doing different stuff than anybody else I've seen. <laughs> you know, that was the one thing that interested him the most. Like, okay, this is not what, what most people are doing. This is going to be interesting. I mean, High Point was fairly well ignored when it opened. It wasn't like a best new course or anything because nobody knew who I was. You know, that's that's just the way those things are for a while. It's hard to get recognition, especially when you're, you know, it's a little easier now because there's not much new stuff going on. But, you know, back when Tom Fazio and Jack Nicholas were turning out 10 new golf courses a year, it's like, you know, what are the odds that you're going to be doing something that's ex as exciting as the best of their 10 projects? It just wasn't happening. So, you know, this time, this time we're starting from a different place. Though. So, so there'll be six existing holes, 12 new holes. Um, yeah. And so the majority of which will come from the, the nine, the nine additional nine holes that you routed in, in roughly like the nine or 1988. Mid, 1988. Okay. Yeah. So um, have you gone back? Like, you know, is it, you're going back, like, I think about it as, like, when I reread an article I wrote six years ago, I just, I'm like, I, I might need to start over. I might need to rewrite this. <laughs> when you looked at the routing, I assume it was just filed away somewhere. When you looked at the routing, you know, what, what stood out to you about the routing, and, and were there any things that you tweaked? Um, well, luckily, I did have a copy of the routing. You know, some, I mean, for a while there, that was very early in my career, I still didn't. I wasn't married. I didn't have a, I didn't have a home. I didn't have an office. So like, like I had, I had no plans for the legends in Myrtle beach. The superintendent there just, just emailed me a picture of my grading plan for the legends. They still had it in their files. So he's going to get a copy of it, but I didn't have that. Fortunately, the maps for high point, I still hung on to. And somehow it included that third nine that I laid out. You know, which I remember, I remembered pretty well how it fit. It's it's a hilly piece of ground like the back nine is. And I thought to myself, I could probably do a better version of that now that isn't quite as up and down. Because, you know, the first time I was 27 years old building High Point. Now I'm 62, 61. It's like, I still walk when I play golf, but I appreciate more that going up a 40-foot hill to the tee it's not so easy as it once was for me. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, you know, a couple of these elevated tees, I need to figure out if I can do something gentler than that. And I did another version of the routing. And then, you know, this, this spring, I went out and tried to walk my new version versus the old. And it's like, no, the old one's better. Really? <laughs> yeah. The, the, the old one is, yeah, it's, it's a little more tough to walk, but, but there's a couple of holes on it. that are just like, I, you still want to do that hole that way. So it is. So the only real new holes in the routing are there's a couple holes further south than the back nine. They, they, they somehow acquired the 40 acres there that, uh, that wasn't available to us originally. And some of it's a wetland. So there's only room for two holes there. Uh, but those will go out and back off the back nine. So, so, uh, you know, the numbering's not all quite the same as before when you add in those two holes. And then the other, the other change, you know, 16 and 17 go away because part of those holes are in the uh, hops. And then the 18th hole was everybody's least favorite hole, but I still got to use that land and I still got to get back toward the clubhouse where the clubhouse won't be in the same place anymore. 
but you still got to get through that space to connect the router. So, but now instead of starting the hole all the way back where it did, you're going to be coming off the 15th green, which was a par three that came down to a bench. So we'll, we'll go down the hill from there and basically tee off from just above the landing area of the old 18th hole and drive it across the big pond and then go up the hill from there. And that, you know, that'll, that'll take out, you know, you used to have a force carry on the second shot and the, the wetlands and stuff on the tee shot made you kind of hedge away from the carry. And then it was a really difficult carry for people, you know, being able to navigate all that on the tee shot, it, you know, it'll still be the only hole with water in play, but it won't be as frustrating as the original hole was. I think if I remember correctly, one time on this podcast, I we there was a question about what hole would you re redesign or or rework, and that was your answer is that the 18th at High Point. Yeah, we we wouldn't have kept that hole the way it was, and you know I I couldn't have looked Rod in the in the face and told him straight that yeah it's going to be a great golf course where with this hole as the finishing hole. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, when you were like, when you sat down, how did you start the process of trying a new routing? Did you start with like a blank topo map? Yeah. Yeah. I still had, I still had the original topo without a golf course on it. And of course it's hard. Cause you remember what's, you know, once you remember the old plan and you know, I still remembered basically how it worked, you know, it's hard to make yourself go in different directions. There's just certain things about it. So that, that piece of land runs more east and west from the old clubhouse. And it's only land up here is like 40 acre blocks that you buy it in generally. And the, so the 40 acres is like a quarter mile on each side, 440 yards. So, so these blocks are all end to end. So it's 440 yards wide and it's a mile long. But the, the far end of it is too steep for golf. Um, so we're coming in there and the clubhouse will be at the east end of what's usable, which is better because if we'd have used the old clubhouse location, you would have played the first two holes straight east into the new ground. That wouldn't have been so great. Now the clubhouse is on the east end of everything and you're not playing into the sun. But we still had to sort out, you know, it's it's only 440 yards wide. We need four holes of width through that there's some serious ups and downs. So, you know, it's hard to space out the holes exactly the way you want. And, you know, there's just not, if you're going to put four holes back and forth in that space, there's not a lot of different solutions for how to do that. You know, you can't really, if you put a hole going north and south across it at any point, you block everything off. You can't really afford to do that in the routing. So, so there weren't like a million different solutions, but there was, there was a, a steep, narrow valley that you're just kind of hitting across on the old plan. And I tried to figure out how to play in a little short part four up into that valley. And it just, you know, I, I never got anything that I thought worked very well compared to the original hole on a high T playing across that valley and, and down to the West. That, that, that hole that I was trying to not build Actually, it reminds me a little bit of the 17th hole at Crystal Downs. It's severe. You know, it's a severe but very short par four. That's like, so, you know, we can manipulate the landing area so it won't be like death to both sides. In fact, the problem with it, the other problem with it is 
if you fan a drive, you're going to be in the hole coming back the other way. You know, it's not like the downs where it's just in the woods to both sides and you lose the ball if you hit it either way. Is the land, how would you compare it to, you know, courses that Kingsley and, and Crystal Downs is, is probably two courses people have been to, Belvedere's and other. Is it somewhere, you know, how would you compare the topography and the and the natural, you know, features out there? Well, I mean, the, you know, anybody that ever saw High Point, the land is a lot like the back nine at High Point was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the same, the, the, the highs are the same elevation and you've got, you know, the difference between the highest point on the new land and the lowest is probably 80 feet. So, so you've got some serious, you know, and you're going to cover that in a couple of holes. So there's, there's some pretty big undulations in there and probably a couple of places where we're going to, you know, we'll move more dirt on that nine than we did when we built the original golf course, not a ton, you know, not every hole or anything like that, but there's a couple of things that because of where the T's, you know, to, to extend, to extend the first hole into a par five, you're going to drive it where you can't see the green on that hole. So we'll probably do some earthwork on that hole to make that work. One last question. You built all 18 greens at the original high point. Will you be building all the greens? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> your green building may, days are know, done. I, huh? might do the, I might do the first version of it. You know, I mean, I'm not the only one that lives in Traverse City. Brian Slonick lives in Traverse City. His wife is the most excited person about us doing this job. He'll be home for dinner. Uh, Don Plasic lives in Traverse City. Bruce Hepner, who lived here for, you know, who worked for me for years, said, yeah, he'd come build some buckers at High Point. That would be cool. So we, you know, we, we have a, a largely local crew to build this thing. Um, you know, and all of those guys have more time on a dozer lately than me. So I'm probably not going to shape all the greens myself, but you know, like we talked about a few months ago, one of the reasons I got back on a dozer in New Zealand was, you know, one of the reasons was just to, you know, get a little head start to make sure we finished on time. But the other was to see if I could do it knowing that high point was a possibility. And yeah, I mean, I built, I shaped a couple of greens in New Zealand, so I'm probably going to do some of the other ones. But I'm not putting the pressure on myself to do them all. <laughs> well, you got. I think you got to do a couple. Just you know, make sure that everything connects back. You know, as much as so. So what you know what we've what we've got is there's six holes that are pretty much done. You know, as soon as we start next spring, we can start putting irrigation in on those holes because there's nothing to shape um, or very. You know, we'll we, we got to we got to dig trees out of the bunkers. Well, and we'll probably make the bunkers a little prettier. But that's not going to take very long. So the irrigation can get going pretty quickly. And while they're, while they're doing that, I'll be over on some of the other stuff starting to play around. And as long as I can stay ahead of them, maybe I'll get to shape more greens. But, but once the construction catches up to me, then, you know, I'm going to have to bring in the A-team to get it finished on time. Because we're trying to build the whole thing this summer. You know, and the only reason we can do that is because we have six holes at a head start. It's like they're, you know, it's like we shaped them this fall, except they shaped them 35 years ago. So, so the plan would be for it to open in 24. I don't know that. I, I don't know what Rod is telling his respective members. You know, we just seeded a green in in Wisconsin the first of September, and 
by the 4th of July next year, they'll be talking about preview play on that hole. Uh, you know, is that really ready to open now? You know, and plus, so it'll be playable in the fall of 24, but I don't know if it'll be open. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Meridian. Uh, Meridian's back. They've been, uh, they sponsored earlier in the year. And uh, this is all about hygiene, men's hygiene, you know, making sure you're a groomed man. And below the belt trimming tends to be a taboo topic. But Meridian is breaking the stigma and helping everyone take better care of their bodies. They have a new trimmer. It's the Trimmer Plus. It's got a lot of new bells and whistles features that are uh, that are going to make trimming easier. You know, some of the things that this really great high-quality trimmer feature, uh, 6,000 RPM motor that's very fast, flexible ceramic blade, anti-nick shaving guard. That seems really important. Uh, it is waterproof also, which, uh, which is nice. And cordless and 90 minutes to charge. So if you're if you're traveling, whatever, uh, you can bring it with you, and it, you don't have to worry about it, it it dying on you while you're out on the road without the charger. Uh, you know, it can be used all over the body. Uh, it's not just you know for below the belt. So uh, you save more when you bundle. So the more stuff you get on there, they have some like nice stuff. They have replacement blades, but they have a nice travel case that I actually use um, when I travel. So I would check it out. Uh, Meridian groomingcom is where you go and if you use the promo code fried egg you'll get 10% off uh, you can you can do that but they also have a lot of holiday things and currently you're gonna save more money with holiday 15 uh, that's gonna get you 15% off if you get if you're listening to this and it's around the Thanksgiving time they have holiday 20 and holiday 30 uh, promo codes that are 20 and 30% off respectively, depending on what time of the month, you know, that you're listening to this and that's meridiangrooming.com. Thank you for Meridian coming back and, uh, supporting the show again. You could go to meridiangrooming.com and check out their wide array of grooming products, including their, their world-class trimmers. Now back to Tom Doak. Let's talk about, uh, uh Wisconsin, Sedge Valley, uh, I personally am kind of excited about this uh, because it's a kind of a different type of new golf course that we've seen at uh, at resorts. Where are you guys at uh, in the process there? Uh, in and uh, what have been kind of the biggest uh, takeaways from the summer? Well, Sedge Valley is this fall exactly where Lido was last fall. We got thirteen holes at Lido built in twenty one. We only got 12 holes at Sedge Valley built in 22, but it's kind of the same. You know, next summer, fall, they'll be doing some preview play on 10 or 12 holes of Sedge Valley, you know, and we'll have just finished the last six holes we'll build in April, May, June. And by the, you know, like this time next year, those will be pretty much grown in, but the greens on the newest holes won't be the same up to the standard of the greens we planted this year. Um, I've been really, you know, that's a concept of building a 6,200 yard golf course that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I'm thrilled that I got to do it for Michael. And I mean, the Lido has been a great thing, but a strange experience because it's not really my design. And, you know, the one thing I said to Michael at the, when he asked me about doing the Lido was, well, I'll do it, but I don't want that to mean I'm not going to wind up doing another golf course. If it's actually my design later on. And he said, no, 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 that's still, 
you know, we at the time we didn't think we would get to it this fast, but I'm thrilled that we did and that I've got a new design of my own to compare to Lido in addition to the other golf courses there. Uh, Sedge Valley, the interesting thing about it, it's still a big piece of land, like maybe even more than the other golf courses there to some degree. It's it's really dramatic. And but but it's a little like I don't want to, I don't want to make that comparison, but generally you only see like a couple holes at a time. You're not like you're not looking at the whole thing at once. Just leaving us hanging with that uh, with that comparison. You know, we're going to have to in our minds uh, imagine that. I think a lot of people just, you know, say, oh, Sand Valley is a, a Mike Kaiser property. But, you know, for the most part, it's run by Michael and Chris. I'm curious, how is working with Michael different than working with his father, Mike? Um, and how is it similar? Uh, well, first of all, it's not just run by Michael and his brother, Chris. They own it. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's you know Mike Mike was more involved in helping get it set up in the beginning and when the first golf when the first and second golf courses were happening, but it it, it is his son's project and they take that pretty seriously and yeah they want you know Michael is he's different than his dad and he you know he wants to do great things of his own and you know he's talking to a lot of people about a lot of different pot potential projects and you know he's got tremendous energy for it he's only you know he's he's barely 40 years old uh so he's you know he's much more engaged than his dad is at this point generally and then you know he's he's just brimming with ideas i mean just like an unbelievable amount of ideas you know, it's it's been a really I've had a really fun time working for him. And so have Eric and Brian Schneider, who are running the two jobs for me. Uh, and I think we'll wind up doing a bunch more golf courses for Michael in the future. Uh, and some of those, you know, it's I'm already talking to Michael at some point. He's going to boot me out because I'm, you know, because because my name is too much out there. You know, he wants to hire the Brian Schneiders and Eric's of the world to be the main person on his golf courses someday in the future, like his dad did instead of just going back to me and Bill and David, because we're the same choices his dad made. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, at the same time, he's like, yeah, that's going to be a hard call. Cause you guys still do great work, you know? And that's what, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. We want that, but, but we want to get new blood involved too and make some, you know, and make somebody else's name. So, you know, that'll be an interesting transition when it happens and it may happen pretty soon or it may not happen for a while. I don't know. Um, what, what I do know is we've had fun doing that project. Um, you know, Michael, he's very involved. He's, he's out there with me a lot when I'm there. Uh, he's out there with Brian and Eric a fair amount, even when I'm not there. Um, I mean, they're very customer conscious. They don't want it to be too severe. Um, you know, they don't want the greens to be too severe. We've talked about that. It's like, you know, and I, you know, I always say to them, well, you know, I don't think the greens at Pacific Dunes are that severe, you know, but they've got character to them. They're not just flat. Like, you, you know, my only problem with them is he keeps saying the word flat and it's like, no, I don't want to do flat, you know? There's a difference. There's, there's a wide range between flat and too severe for anybody to have fun. 
and we've just got to find what edge he's comfortable with on that. But, you know, the thing about Sedge Valley is partly because it's short, you know, there's five par three holes. There's a bunch of short par fours. I don't even, I haven't tried to count how many par fours there are under 400 yards, but it must be like half a dozen. And, and so, you know, with those holes that are like driver wedge for a good player, it's like, we can make those green sites tough, not necessarily like wild, but narrow targets. And, you know, like you're, you know, if you're going for a pin in the back of number six green, you're going to be squeezing it into a really tight area that if you miss, you could make double. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that they've been a little afraid to do on their other golf courses, but they're a little more open to because, you know, in theory, you've got a wedge in your hands and it shouldn't, you know, you should be able to get away with that more when people have a wedge in their hands. How has it been creating uh, variety when you have so many shorter holes? Is that, has that been a challenge? Um, and, and if so, how have you gone about uh, having variety with a lot of holes at a similar length? Uh, you know, I'm never too worried about variety in terms of like the scorecard and the idea that you're going to hit different clubs in for all the approaches. I mean, it's just like, I want a variety of, you know, skinny target, shallow target, open front where you actually might run it up cross bunker where you can't run it up. And yeah, again, when you build, when you're building short holes, there's more leeway for that kind of different stuff. I've always felt like the short par fours are the coolest holes I design. It's like you can get away with more because they're short. So, you know, having five or six short par fours on a golf course is not a bad thing at all. And, you know, the old course has a bunch of short par fours and they're all really different. And I think the ones at Sand Valley are going to be all really different. Let's talk about a, a project that we haven't talked about on, on the podcast. Um, Punta Brava. It will be a golf course in Mexico. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, the site and, uh, and what is, uh, what's going on there. Um, the site's just South of Ensenada, Mexico, which is only like an hour and a half drive South of Tijuana where the border crossing is. And it's, you know, the first part of the name, if you speak Spanish, Punta, it's on a point sitting out into the Pacific Ocean. It's surrounded by water. I almost want to say on three sides, that's not quite right, but there's there's a lot of ocean frontage. And then there's kind of a mountain on the inside of it that goes up like 1,500 feet and blocks it off from the rest of the mainland. So it's just really this this isolated property that, you know, if you were hiking or trying to drive, you would never see. Um, but it is, you know, I don't like doing the hyperbole thing. It's the most dramatic piece of land for a golf course that anybody's ever showed me. And I've seen some great pieces of land for a golf course. You know, it's certainly not the easiest place to build a golf course. The, the, the closest analogy I could have for it, it's like, you know, if you took Stone Eagle with the rock formations and all the stuff in the steep terrain that's there, and then you just put it right on the ocean on cliffs 20 to 50 feet above the ocean, like Cypress Point. Um, so it's a crazy dramatic piece of land, just off the charts. 
Um, it's all rock. It's going to be really hard to build a golf course there, but it has the potential to be something just really dramatic. And, you know, I've worked on the oceanfront a lot over the years. And yet, even though everybody knows how much that adds to the golf, it's like, I was trying to think the other day when I was down in Mexico, like how many holes have I built where you would actually hit a ball into the Pacific ocean, even as steep down as that one hole is at Cape kidnappers. It's probably not getting to the water because 400 feet down, you know, even as steep as that is goes out a ways and, you know, Bandon, you can hit it off the cliff onto the beach, but you're not really hitting it into the ocean. Uh, Punta Brava has eight holes and like 12 shots, 13 shots that you could hit in the ocean. So it's, it's more almost like a Caribbean course, like with the, I don't know. I always think of those courses really a butt into the sea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Casa de Campo has a bunch of holes where you can hit it in the water. Yes. So yeah, similar to that in some ways, but you know, steeper and more dramatic on the inside. With it, with it being rocky, rockier, you know, just in terms of your construction, what type of strain does that put on on the on your team's work there? It, you know, everybody always talks about how much harder it is to build there. What does that mean in terms of you know, kind of time it takes to build holes? Um, what goes into building a hole and the you know length of a project? <laughs> It'll definitely go slower. You know, I mean, you, you sort of assume in Mexico, things are going to go a little slower anyway, just because, you know, when the dozer, when the hydraulics line busts in the dozer or, or some little thing that makes the, the blade move one direction gets bent by a rock or something, there's not a guy standing there with another part waiting for it. You've got to get it across the border. You know, every time there's a slowdown, the slowdown takes longer to fix. Um, and then working in rock is just, you know, it's just you're grinding through it. And, you know, hopefully with minimalism, we're not having to change. We're not having to reshape everything that much. But as steep as that site is, there's certainly going to be a bunch that we have to do something to. So, yeah, it's not going to be a job that goes snap like that and happens really fast. You know, the best case is it'll take us 12 months to build it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes longer than that. And as busy as we are right now, that's like, you know, I can't put Eric on that for 12 to 18 months waiting for it to happen. So, so we'll put somebody else on it who can be there that long and then we'll come in and get three or four holes done in a stretch and then you know let the let the next part take a while before we get back to it probably you were in scotland uh you were in ireland scotland this summer um obviously st patrick's uh opening in ireland but then in scotland you're you're working on the new courses castle stewart um what what where are we at with that one um, yeah, I've got to get used to the name of Cabot Highlands, which is what they've rebranded Castle Stewart. And I think they'll still call it. Like, I haven't asked Ben Cowan Dewar about it, but I'm assuming that the first golf course will stay Castle Stewart and the new course will be Cabot Highlands. Um, so Cabot Highlands. Cabot Highlands. So, you know, Mark Parsonen, when he developed Castle Stewart originally, always had a plan to do 36 holes, you know with the other course being 
to the, I guess that's the west, kind of the west and a little to the north from the existing golf course. So when you when you play Castle Stewart, you play the first three holes on low ground, you get out to a little point low against the water, then you play the fourth hole back toward the castle, and then you work your way back in. So the new course will start up by the clubhouse where the range is now, and play down through that space and play it pat right past the castle. We've got like a short par four, like don't hook it into the castle, please. And then, you know, and then go out around that bay that the third hole sticks out and forms. So the land's got some drama to it. Um, you know, the inland parts, just like the original Castle Stewart course, are more farmland, and we're going to have to contour those up and make them feel linksier than they do right now. Um, but it's got a fair amount of water frontage to it. It's got, you know, it's got the castle, both as something that you play right by on this one hole, but as a focal point for two or three of the other holes on the golf course. And it's really an excellent piece of ground for golf. And, and then the thing about that one too, you know, Clyde Johnson, um, you know, Clyde's worked for us for years and he started at Dismal River and he's worked on a ton of things, including, you know, he's British. So, you know, he's worked on all the things we've built outside the U.S. He worked on Terra Edie. He worked on the new course at TRI. You know, he worked on St. Patrick's. Um, and then he's helped out with a couple other projects in the States in between. But you know, he's been to the point in his career for a while that he's ready to run a job. And, you know, he just he just got married a year and a half ago and they just had a baby. And it's like, you know, when Ben called me about the job for Cabot Highlands, it's like, yes, you know, because that's going to be a great job for Clyde to run and really show what he can do. And, you know, and, I, and I've said it to Ben, like, you know, I want Clyde to get credit for this. You know, I really want all of these associates to start getting more credit with me for what they're doing um but you know this will be his chance to shine and i'm excited to see what he does it's it's an interesting aspect of of golf architecture because it's uh, all the credit usually goes to the the name brand designer whether it's you or or bill core and ben crenshaw or, or gil hans or david kidd but at in almost every situation i think almost every situation the people that are there day to day building most of the features are somebody else yeah and you know the hard part about that is you know it usually goes beyond that number two person too you know like sometimes the the person that's doing the really cool creative stuff that you love at the end of the day you know they were the third or fourth person on the job they're the one who had time to do all the cool stuff while the other guy is like trying to make sure the construction project keeps moving forward and holes are getting finished and grassed. And they don't, you know, sometimes the lead associate doesn't get as much creative time as they want. You know, that's really, that's the hard thing when you are running a job is to manage your time well enough that you can be really involved in the creative part too. And obviously when you've got like, you know, when you're not doing too many jobs and you've got a lot of other talented people around, you don't have to worry about that quite so much. With your your staff, like you want them to flourish. You, obviously, when they get more credit, they obviously have it, it makes you it more difficult on you, too, because then the more credit they get, 
they're probably going to, like, Brian Schneider, for example, obviously has been developing name. He's getting more and more consulting work, more and more new yep. work, and he's less yep. and less available to you. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and certainly that was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, that would have been more of a problem. And, you know, what, what was happening to us even 10 or 15 years ago was that, you know, certain associates like Jim Urbino, when he worked for me, you know, people would know, you know, he ran Pacific Dunes. So that's the guy we want. You know, no, we don't want Eric. You know, they didn't know who Eric was. They knew that Jim had run the job at Pacific Dunes. So that's who they wanted. And it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of talented people over here and you've heard of one of them. That doesn't mean he's the best one or the only one, you know? So yes, it's a problem. It's a, and it's especially a problem when one or two people are getting the credit and the rest of the people aren't. Um, you know, so I'm at, you know, I'm 61 now. Maybe I'm doing this another 10 years. Most of them will be doing it for longer than that. So they need to get more credit. And yeah, if Brian Schneider gets to the point where I can't put him on a new job because he's got all these things of his own going, you know, I'll really miss him the same way I miss some of the people that used to work for me. But, you know, we'll have to keep moving on. And, you know, Brian's not... You know, he still says he really wants to be involved. He's definitely going to help, you know, he's, he's going to go help shape on another project for part of the time while he's still working on old Barnwell this year, which is great. He just said he just couldn't commit to actually running that job while he had one of his own. With, um, I guess, you know, that in mind, like, uh, do you go with, with, you know, with Brian, are you going to go visit old Barnwell and give him thoughts on that? I don't know if this would be common practice, but would it be something? And obviously he would have to ask you for your input, but, but is that something that you would, you know, like, is that something you would like to establish with people that, you know, move beyond, it's almost like you're creating like a coaching tree, like a, like a college basketball coach. You hear with like coach K's coaching tree. Uh, well, you know, the politics of that are really tricky. And I've been dealing that with that for years. You know, Gil Hans and Mike DeVries both worked for me back in the day. And it's like, do I go see their new course? And, you know, if I express an opinion on it or I write something about it, it's like, you know, if I love it, it's because they work for me. If I hate it, I must dislike them. And it can't just be about the work and my honest impression of the work. So, I'm always a little conflicted about going to see that. And it'll be the same for Brian and Eric and all these guys that have been working for me the last few years. It's like, you know, when, when we were working on Lido, Brian had, he had the topo map for old Barnwell. We were all staying in a rental house. He had the topo map for old Barnwell, like out on the dining room table, which we never used like for a month or two. And I made a couple of visits and I didn't say anything about it. <laughs> and, and, you know, at some point he finally was like, so do you want to have a look at that? And I was like, not unless you ask me, you know, if you want to just run with it on your own, that's what you should do. If you want my two cents worth, I'll look at it quick. You know, I, I don't mind doing that. And it's good. You know, so I did. And I, I kind of, you know, the things I questioned were like, that looks pretty severe. Are you sure you want to do it that severe? Or, or, or are you going to move more dirt to fix that? Or are, are you trying to build something really dramatic? Is that what your client wants? Um, and, 
you know, it'll be the same whenever I go see the golf course. You know, am I going to do that this winter? I don't know. I mean, you know, not unless Brian asks. And if he does, yeah, I'll come out. And if he doesn't, I'll wait till the golf course is open and I just can go play it like everybody else. And yeah, for sure, I'll tell him what I think about it once it's an open golf course. But other than that, it's up to him. All right, we're we're going to move on to part two of this podcast. Uh, we'll be back uh, in a few episodes with uh, with part two, and we we go through more uh, questions and answers uh, from from listeners and uh, kind of a free ranging topics. But Tom, thank you for uh, for your time and and coming back on the pod to talk about some of your new projects. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and the Yoke with Doak. Thanks to Tom for setting aside some time to talk to us. And thank you to Meg Atkins for editing and producing this episode. As always, Meg does an awesome job with the team. A quick reminder, reminder, announcement. We've produced a a large documentary project on YouTube uh, called Teaching Turf in the Sandhills. This is all about a internship program at Sandhills and uh, Ballyneal. Thanks to Toro, we were able to produce this. This is a, a kind of a look behind the scenes at what makes Sandhills and Ballyneal tick. Uh, we it, it extensively features the golf courses, but what goes into maintaining them, as well as this unique internship program that they have at these two courses, where college interns uh, will spend half the summer at Sandhills and half the summer at Ballyneal. So it features superintendents Kyle Hagland and uh, Jared Kalina, and uh, it's gotten a lot of positive feedback from whether you're super into turf grass management or you're just interested in golf uh, alike. This uh, this project wouldn't have been able to be done without uh, Garrett Morrison and Cameron Hurtis. Uh, those two have been absolute superstars putting this series together. And uh, I'm really proud of their work and what it's been. Uh, and you can check that out on YouTube. It's, it's called Teaching Turf in the Sandhills. And uh, if you go to our YouTube page, subscribe and watch it there. Uh, those two have put you know months of work into this project. And uh, I'm really proud of it. So check it out there. If you haven't yet, if you just listened to this, this podcast, you don't know about our YouTube page. We got a lot of uh, cool stuff. I think personally, I'm very biased, but I think it's really uh, a lot of neat golf course stuff. And if you like this podcast, you probably like some of the stuff we have on our YouTube page. Uh, and this series is, is definitely, you know, probably the thing that I'm uh, personally most proud of uh, that we've done uh, at the fried egg this year. So go check it out. It's teaching turf in the sandhills on our YouTube page. Thanks, and we will be back next week uh, with two episodes of the Friday Podcast. I'm uh, I'm super excited. On Friday should be a really fun episode. Uh, I I just finished recording it as of recording this outro, uh, where we do you know a look back at uh, some of the iconic golf clubs of the '90s, 2000s, and '80s. That was really really fun. I don't want to spoil it too much, but I can't think of a pod I've had much more fun recording uh, in recent memory. So. Uh, We will be back next week with two episodes, and everybody have a great Thanksgiving.